Some very prominent national Democrats are spending time in Arizona this week with the goal of helping turn the state for Hillary Clinton. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll look at polling that indicates the state is a dead heat between Clinton and Donald Trump. We'll also find out how important tonight's final presidential debate could be to Arizona, especially considering it's taking place in Las Vegas. Plus, treason is the only crime explicitly identified in the U.S. Constitution. How many times has it actually been committed, and how much of a concern is it currently? I'll ask Jeremy Duda, author of the new book, If This Be Treason. Also, Phoenix Suns head coach Earl Watson has tried to incorporate unique ways of looking at basketball and reestablishing the importance of teamwork. I'll find out why Watson isn't worried about low expectations from outside observers. And photojournalist Lindsay Adario has focused on humanitarian and human rights issues and the work she's done in places like Afghanistan and Libya. We'll talk about her experiences. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, treason is the only crime explicitly identified in the U.S. Constitution. How many times has it actually been committed and how much of a concern is it currently? I'll ask Jeremy Duda, author of the new book, If This Be Treason. Also, Phoenix Suns head coach Earl Watson has tried to incorporate unique ways of looking at basketball and reestablishing the importance of teamwork. I'll find out why Watson is not concerned about low expectations from outside observers and will meet Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario. But we start today's program with a look at Election Day in Arizona and some interesting polling data with some Democratic heavy hitters like Bernie Sanders and First Lady Michelle Obama in Arizona this week. It's clear the Hillary Clinton campaign thinks it has a pretty good chance to win here. Valley-based High Ground Public Affairs released the results of a poll earlier this week that has Clinton ahead of Donald Trump, 38.5 percent to 36.5. With me to talk about that and some other poll numbers is Chuck Coughlin, president and CEO of High Ground. Chuck, good morning. Good morning, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So Clinton is ahead in Maricopa and Pima counties, behind significantly in rural Arizona. First of all, before we parse some of these numbers, are you surprised based on the knowledge you have of how the electorate in Arizona works? No. uh, You know, I think it would surprise a lot of people um, that uh, look at Arizona from outside and look at it as a traditionally red state, which it is, um, and will largely continue to be so. But the the Trump campaign has you know is cornerstone one of the cornerstone issues as you know has been talked about is immigration. Arizona voters have a much more uh, we've been baptized in this issue for well over a decade. Uh, the rhetoric that the Trump campaign talks about about simply building the wall uh, is been used out here for a long time and you know we have a great cultural and historical tradition with Mexico. We have it's our largest trading partner as a state. We don't people here recognize we don't need a wall. Uh, we need a functioning, secure border that promotes trade and economic opportunity, which includes reforming the immigration system. We have two senior senators that have supported immigration reform, um, and that's one of the biggest issues on the federal radar screen for Arizona voters. So he's out of step there. He's out of step on trade issues uh, with most Arizona voters as well. And then, uh, you know, he's out of step on some cultural, some cultural uh, conservative issues with parts of the electorate. We, uh, uh, you know, we, we saw the tape last week and or heard it, and uh, um, that that I think doesn't sit well with a lot of cultural conservatives who seem to be underperforming for him while still performing for Senator McCain. So as a longtime strategist, if you were on the Clinton team, is it okay with your campaign when maybe a lot of the electorate is against your opponent rather than for you. Can you use that to your advantage, or is there inherent risk in that? 
there is risk in it. Uh, you know, uh, from a campaign, a strictly campaign perspective, it's great. You just sort of sit back and watch the implosion. From a governing perspective, it becomes very troublesome because, you know, what you what you hope to use campaigns for, candidates that I enjoy working for use campaigns to establish governing agendas. And that's what you use that electoral momentum to create unity within the country. That's, uh, that, that's the essence of what a good campaign should do. And so it's interesting to see now that the uh, with uh, Senator Sanders' vote uh, visit yesterday, talking about issues about dark money, talking about issues about immigration, talking about issues about trade, talking about issues with regards to school, um, uh, higher education, and affordability. Those are all issues which you know you can build electoral coalitions around in Arizona. It'll be interesting to see what the first lady says, and of course uh, uh, Chelsea is going to go to apparently to Tempe, which uh, you know is a traditionally more one of the more um, uh, moderate to liberal communities in Maricopa County. It's the home of Arizona State University, as you know, uh, and uh, traditionally leans a little left of center compared to other Valley cities. Chuck, as you alluded to, Senator McCain came out much better in this poll than Donald Trump did, leading Andrew Patrick by a double-digit lead there. Mm-hmm. Um, where Where is Senator McCain at this point? It seemed that there was a, uh, there was a thought that Ann Kirkpatrick, because she was certainly the most high-profile Democratic candidate he's faced in a very long time, being an incumbent representative, that this might turn out differently. But has John McCain been able to separate himself in the sense that both he and Donald Trump have ridiculously high name recognition? Has he been able to to make it so he is, if people are judging him, they're judging him on John McCain as opposed to Donald Trump slash John McCain? Correct. I, I, you know, this this is. Uh, I first came out here, full disclosure, to work for the senator in his first Senate campaign in 1985. Uh, I think he still claims that was his largest mistake in life. But uh, you know, he uh, he's been he's been around. I mean, he's he's a known quantity on the stage. Um, his name ID, as you alluded to, is is practically 99%, uh, and people associate uh, certain positions with him. I think from a national security perspective, as his campaign's been talking about, everybody is uh, edgy, uh, on edge as to where the world's security situation is. They feel comfortable with John's leadership uh, as chairman of the Armed Services Committee in that capacity. Um, They may disagree with him on issues. They may have challenges with him in his long tenure, uh, as as voters have with Hillary being on the stage for 30 years. But I think Arizona voters know him, and uh, you know, as you say, Congresswoman Kirkpatrick, uh, probably the best opponent she, he's had. But she's had the burden of never having really run in Maricopa County or Pima County, the two largest uh, electoral bases in the state. She represents a legislative district CD1, which is uh, you know larger than most eastern states, uh, but doesn't encompass any of the large population centers. So she had a name ID problem to begin with, and. The senator used a lot of resources to define uh, her for everybody else, and she suffered from that, I think. Chuck, one thing that came out after your poll was conducted was the comments that Senator McCain made about potentially blocking Supreme Court nominees by Hillary Clinton. And that that doesn't sound like the moderate independent John McCain that a lot of people like. Uh, yeah. I saw that as well, and I saw the campaign sort of walk that back a little bit right after that. Uh, you know, it surprised me. Uh, it surprised. I got a few calls from other people about that. Um, you'd think that would be the more advising consent role, uh, and you know, if a person's qualified, you you vote them up and down. And so, uh, 
it, it, it was surprising, and I think it's an issue that Congresswoman Kirkpatrick's campaign has picked up on and started to bang him on, and that's why I, I thought some of those comments were walked back by his team yesterday. Chuck, we've got about 90 seconds left. Let's go to the propositions 205 and 206. Um, yeah. Recreational marijuana, based on your poll, looks like it's a tight one, whereas minimum wage uh, was winning by quite a bit. How do you interpret those? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, it, both issues have, uh, as the electorate ages, particularly on the marijuana issue, there's experiential. <laughs> it was getting trounced with voters 65 and older. Uh, I think the number uh, on 65 and older was, you know, it was losing by 45, uh, 45 points. With younger voters, it was up 46. Uh, with voters, you know, 30 to 39, it was up 15. With voters 50 to uh, or 40 to 40, 26, and then 50, you know, the 50 to 64, it was tied. So it's, younger voters are definitely more apt to be supportive of that. So it's an interesting thing to see what if, uh, if there will be an effect with the Clinton push out here to turn out younger voters. And, and Steve, I should mention, too, none of this data takes into account the massive registration drive that the Democrats have engaged in out here. So we poll voters. We talk to voters. We call the voter roll. Um, that's uh, and we it's two out of three in terms of participation and so we know we're talking to voters we don't talk to them because they don't have an experience of voting so um, again based on registration that could make a difference in a close race with the with both the twin efforts with uh, the the democratic push and then with the uh, with uh, the registration drive the minimum wage looks like it's going to cruise to victory. We've talked a long time in the last uh, five to ten years on uh, wage inequality in this country, and I think it's baked into the electorate. There's a very difficult argument for the business community to make that, you know, you don't work in a 40-hour week and make a livable wage. And so it it, it seems to be a fairly fixed opinion amongst uh, most, most of the electorate. Chuck Hofflin is president and CEO of High Ground, also a longtime political consultant. We've been talking about some of their latest polling data. And Chuck, thanks for checking in. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having us on. This is KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Tonight will be the third and final presidential debate of this campaign season between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. The first two have been eventful, but many would argue that's not because of disagreements over issues like the economy or foreign policy. So what should we expect for tonight in the Las Vegas debate? With me to talk about that and broader campaign issues is ASU political scientist Rudy Espino. Rudy, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Do you consider in any way the Las Vegas setting to be significant at all tonight. Nevada in the past has been a little bit of a swing state, or is this just sort of, this is where they decided to hold the debate? Uh, yes and no, uh, to answer your question uh, directly. And the reason I say yes is if you, you know, raw demographics were trending to be like um, uh, Nevada in the sense that uh, we have a significant growing Latino population, um, but no in the sense that we also have a much more conservative um, um, wider population than does Nevada, um, and that is where you know think you know this is what makes Arizona uh, a coin toss. Um, but if you've been paying attention to recent polling data, Arizona has been pushed into a potential battleground state, um, which is uh, what some uh, political forecasters uh, predicted would happen either in 2016 or 2020 based on our demographic trends. 
Um, so issues with respect to Latino voters, uh, immig- in specifically immigration reform, if they come up tonight, um, mm-hmm. might be relevant in making Arizona more of a battleground state. Um, other things to consider is you look at the Clinton campaign and what they're eyeing in terms of their internal polling suggests that they do consider Arizona up for grabs, given the fact that they're sending really high-level, um, high-name, high-profile surrogates, such as Bernie Sanders, Michelle Obama, Chelsea Clinton here to Arizona um, post-debate. You, you mentioned the demographic trends, which is interesting because, as you said, people have been wondering when those trends, particularly the, the growth of Latino registered voters, would have an impact. Do you think it's possible that timeline was moved up because of Donald Trump? I mean, could it have been 2020 with a more... Uh, let's say a more common Republican nominee. Yeah, absolutely. Let's play the counterfactual. Had it been um, Jeb Bush, it would have been pushed back probably to 2020. But because of some of the statements that Trump has made, not just about women, but with respect to African-Americans and then specifically with respect to uh, Mexico and uh, Mexican-Americans, yeah, that has pushed the timeline a little bit forward, in my opinion. So we always hate to bring up Latino voters as some kind of monolith. Um, Rudy, what sort of impact do you think Latino voters will have at the presidential level, specifically in Arizona? And do you think that will carry down to specifically the Maricopa County Sheriff's race, for example? Uh, Yes, it could. Um, uh, Latino voters have been paying attention to this election for well over the past year because the the statements that um, Trump has made about Hispanic Americans uh, and Mexico in particular, well precede him securing the nomination. And um, th- this goes back to this summer of 2015, the statements that he's made. Um, and Latino voters and particularly Latino activists have been cognizant of this and have been constantly reminding Latino voters um, of this issue and, and priming Latino voters, you better get registered, you better get registered, you better turn out. Um, and then with respect to um, down the ticket um, uh, offices. I mean, Arizona is not the only one that where Republicans are concerned about the effect that Trump is having on down the ticket races. But um, in Maricopa County, um, there's the big name recognition, uh, Arpaio versus Penzone. Uh, you know, frankly, uh, Arpaio, one of the greatest predictors of who's going to win is cash on hand, and Arpaio does have more cash on hand and backing and name recognition than does Penzone. Um, you might see enthusiasm of Latino voters going to support Penzone, but frankly, I just think it's not quite there yet. And that um, Arpaio has been associating himself with Trump, but uh, I, I don't think the demographic trends here in Maricopa County have um, shifted quite in the favor of uh, an opponent of Pario just yet. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. A few more minutes left with ASU political scientist Rudy Espino. Rudy, let's focus a little bit more on tonight's debate. Uh, As you mentioned earlier, there's been so much focus on what Donald Trump has said about women, what he specifically said about women 11 years ago in that uh, Access Hollywood interview. How much of the focus, I think there are a lot of our listeners who would like to hear plans. They'd like to hear, is there a specific economic plan? Is there a specific foreign policy plan that sounds viable? Do you think we're going to hear that, or do you think most of it will be spent on character assassination on both sides? Well, I think the moderator, uh, Chris Wallace, is probably being directed by the commission um, that directs these debates to this is what voters want to hear. They're tired of the character assassinations. But frankly, given what we've seen in the previous two debates, I cannot, I don't anticipate how quickly either one of those candidates will quickly pivot for to a character assassination. 
um, you know, uh, what we're hearing is that Trump is being told to focus on policy because that's what the voters want to hear. But given what we've seen him, how quickly he deviates from directions, um, I don't see that happening. And uh, and uh, Clinton's camp is just going to, you know, try to just be respectful and polite and continue to let um, Trump sink himself as their their strategy. Um, I do think that what, with respect to tonight's debate, I think that uh, you know, there's been some discussion and discourse out there that the American public is turned off by the lack of attention on policy, but they're also, frankly, turned on by entertainment. And the first two debates have been entertaining in a, in a bad way in some ways. But uh, I do think because of the, those first two debates that the ratings for tonight's debate will be extremely high because we're just uh, interested in how Trump is going to react and respond and deviate from the, the advisable script. And political observers would say that we've already seen, whether it's Donald Trump's comments about women or the concern among some about Hillary Clinton's email situation, and uh, as we mentioned, both sides are sort of hitting those quite hard. When you look forward and and look ahead at this, is this going to be a case where uh, we've seen as much dirt as we possibly can, it's as low as it can go, or in the last couple of weeks, could we see it get worse? Uh, I, well, I would think that it's probably going to get worse. Um, you know that uh, you know with campaigns, you know they'll they'll sit on some money and uh, do some last minute buys of advertising, and um, uh, you know and Trump's statements and his behavior in the past suggest that he's going to go all out and um, does suggest that there is cash on hand that he plans to do a lot of last minute ad buys that are going to go negative. And uh, because he's desperate and negative, we do know that in political science research that um, negative advertising does work, despite the fact that American publics do get turned off on it. But the reason it's effective is effective is that it grabs our attention. And, um, you know, and then, you know, there's the media effect with this, too, is uh, post-debate. How is the media going to be spinning this? Um, Because you have your handlers that will be analyzing the debate and the performance of each of the candidates. And that is a significant factor to consider. And this is something that the Trump camp has been criti- uh, or been critical of, is that the fact that they believe there is a significant bias against the Trump camp um, mm-hmm. and the fact that they believe that they won debates and the media then says it comes in and spins it the opposite direction, according to them. So, um, you know, and what's interesting, you know, Chris Wallace, Fox News, is considered to be a conservative-leaning outlet. I have a feeling that even if Trump loses tonight, they will now go after Fox News if they, the media spins it that way and bring it back to Arizona. A significant thing is endorsements and media, and the Arizona Republic has been criticized for not endorsing Trump, as you know, and they had to come out in defense of why they do not consider Trump a conservative candidate that represents conservative values. Um, so that's an important thing. It's not just the debate itself, but the narrative that um, comes after the the debate. Right, a lot to watch tonight and the aftermath. ASU political scientist Rudy Espino. Rudy, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And still to come on here and now, we'll explore treason with the Arizona Capital Times' Jeremy Duda. And then later on this hour, Phoenix Suns head coach Earl Watson. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Yupa's Thai Kitchen, located on the southeast corner of McClintock and Elliott in Tempe, serving authentic Thai food in a homeland-style decor. Lunch and dinner menus at yupas.com. Good morning. You're listening to Here and Now. We'll have sunny skies today and an expected high of 93. The rest of the week, expect a lot of sun with highs around 97 through Saturday and 95 on Sunday.
Did you know KJZZ loves cars, boats, trucks, anything with wheels and an engine? If you have a vehicle you no longer need, turn it into your favorite shows here on KJZZ. It's easy. To donate a vehicle, visit cars.kjzz.org to find out more, and thank you. Right now in Flagstaff, we have sunny skies and it's 56. In Tucson, sunny and 83. And here in Phoenix, sunny and 88 degrees at 1126. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The term treason was tossed around by some observers in recent months in reference to Donald Trump and comments he's made about Russian President Vladimir Putin. But do comments like that actually constitute treason or something very different? Jeremy Duda of the Arizona Capital Times explores the broader topic and its history in his new book, his first, called If This Be Treason, The American Rogues and Rebels Who Walk the Line Between Dissent and Betrayal. And Jeremy, welcome. Thanks a lot, Steve. So let's define treason as the Constitution defines it. Well, in the Constitution, it is defined as levying war against the United States or providing aid or comfort to its enemies. And uh, But as you mentioned, we hear this thrown around so often, you know, against Donald Trump, against Hillary Clinton, against pretty much every politician and president we've ever had. And most of the times you hear that term used, they're refer- pe- people mean it more in kind of the general terms of you're being a disloyal American, you're betraying the country, something like that. So over the course of history, and you looked into a lot of history for this book, does it does it weaken it at all to have it thrown around like that, the actual concept? Um, probably not. I mean, just because we so rarely see an actual indictment or conviction. We actually haven't had a conviction for uh, treason in this country, I think, since the early 50s. We actually had someone, I think about a decade ago, charged with it. He was later killed in a drone strike, so that uh, case never played out. But we so rarely you know, see any kind of indictment or conviction or charge of that. I think if we saw that, it would be you know, generally kind of a bombshell. Now, you were referring to the American Taliban, yes. John Walker Lind. Um, now actually, we, actually, he, actually, it was not. It was another, oh, so, uh, another oh. American. He wasn't. I think that okay. kind of goes to show how rare this is, that obviously he would have fit the criteria under what he was accused of, of uh, you know, taking up arms against his country, but he was not charged with that. Thanks for correcting me. I would have thought that was, that was kind of obvious. Let's go and let's sort of take history backwards. So let's start with, with Edward Snowden. You write a little bit about Snowden in the epilogue of the book. Where, where does he fit? He's facing charges, but of course he's not in the U.S. Ha- has there been real talk about charging him with treason as opposed to these other things? I'm, I'm, I think that's probably been kicked around a lot. Obviously, people have used, his detractors have used the term, you know, treason and traitor to describe him, but he's charged under the Espionage Act, not with treason. And I think uh, Snowden kind of encapsulates the uh, kind of concept behind his book quite perfectly in that, uh, you know, Obviously, a lot of people believe he has betrayed his country. He's facing charges living in Russia in exile right now. A lot of people believe that what he did was out of patriotism and believe that it was a good thing. But um, so that term has really been thrown around a lot uh, you know, in terms of him. When we consider how different a country is when it is blooming, as the U.S. was when the Constitution was written, and here we are a couple of hundred years later, did it seem like because of the time the Constitution was written, the fact that there was a revolution involved and everything else, that there was just more day-to-day concern by the founders about treason? Because breaking off from another country, whereas today, someone, in order to commit treason, it would have to be, one would think, completely different drama because of the different setting we're in right now. Sure. Well, at the time that the Constitution was written, at the time of the Revolutionary War, this was a big concern of the uh, you know, founders of the country, the framers of the Constitution, not so much as much concerned about people committing it, but concerned about the way government defines it, because under British rule, it was a, a much looser uh, definition. There was a story, I believe, uh, is told in the uh, at the Constitutional Convention about someone in uh, Britain who had uh, wished death on some anonymous person who had killed his favorite buck, and he was 
charged with treason because that person turned out to be the king. So the uh, founding fathers, they were very well aware of the way that this concept of that, that law could be misused against uh, citizens by the government. And that's why they put this very precise definition in the Constitution in the first place. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix with Jeremy Duda of the Arizona Capital Times. We're talking about his first book, If This Be Treason, The American Rogues and Rebels Who Walk the Line Between Dissent and Betrayal. And Jeremy will be at Changing Hands Bookstore coming up on November the 14th. Nicholas Trist is an interesting story, especially because even geographically, very close to Arizona. Give us an idea of how he ended up around here and why why treason was tossed around with him. Well, Nicholas Trist, he was a uh, one of the top uh, people over at the uh, State Department during the administration of uh, President James K. Polk during the Mexican War. Now, he was a you know very loyal uh, member of the administration, loyal Southern Democrat. So w- when it came time, after we'd been rolling through Mexico for a while to uh, kind of forge a peace treaty, uh, President Polk and uh, Secretary of State Buchanan decided he was the guy to send down there. Now, once he got down there, after he you know, watched the war unfold a bit, he decided that he wasn't really okay with what he was seeing happen. He thought we were being you know, very oppressive towards Mexico. We'd obviously taken a ton of their land. And um, so he started, want, you know, started really questioning the rightness of what the U.S. was doing. President Polk had kind of got wind of the fact that he wasn't so sympathetic to the war aims anymore, ordered him recalled back to the United States, Polk, with some urging from uh, General Winfield Scott, or uh, Trist, with some urging from General Winfield Scott, decided, I'm going to ignore this order. I'm going to, you know, defy my president, and I'm going to stay down here to forge not a just treaty, but the least bad treaty he could uh, create with Mexico. And obviously, the result of that, uh, we were sitting on the land acquired under that treaty. But had it not been for that, there was a lot of talk in Washington, in Congress, in the president's cabinet about taking a lot more land that we had at the time. Our troops were in Mexico City. Some people wanted to go hundreds of miles south of where our border is now. Some people talked about taking the entire country. Trist did not want to see that happen. So he stayed there to make the treaty uh, of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Earlier, you mentioned the early 1950s, and you have a really interesting chapter about sort of the McCarthy era, the Red Scare era. And the names that always popped to mind for me, you know, when Richard Nixon was was there and, and whatnot, how much of a period do you think, um, how important was that in, in terms of treason, in terms of modern day America, in terms of our thoughts, the average American thinking about that? I think it was very significant because that um, even though we didn't see, I don't think we ever actually saw any treason uh, indictments or convictions out of the Cold War, that was uh, obviously an era when that term was used very heavily against anyone suspected of having communist sympathies, of anyone having communist leanings. And so when I started writing this book, I knew I wanted something out of that era. And there's so many well-known incidents. And I ended up finding uh, an extremely fascinating uh, chapter of history that isn't so well-known, even to history buffs like myself, Mm -hmm. about uh, what was known as the Smith. Act trial, a uh, trial against uh, uh, 11 uh, top-ranking members of the American Communist Party. And they were basically charged under a law that basically made it, the way they used it, made it illegal to be a communist. Were there any that didn't make the cut for you? You've got 12 stories. One that popped to mind for me, and again, to extend this to treason, I think would be ridiculous, but it did pop to mind, with Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, that was one as well where I presume he was seen as a traitor in some sense. Sure, and he gets uh, some mention in my book. There is one chapter about uh, kind of brought more broadly about press leaks, and it focuses mostly on uh, the Chicago Tribune in December of 1941 revealing President Roosevelt's war plans, very secret war plans uh, for Europe. And this was They printed this several days before the attack on Pearl Harbor. And later in that chapter, we discuss other, uh, you, know, you know, the most famous uh, incident of press leaks, at least prior to Snowden, in this country, which was Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. Now, as a political journalist, you see 
how people are on different sides of things. Is there any reason to believe that as people seem more divided, maybe the political divide will somehow narrow at some point? But at this point, is there any reason to think that that would be something that would be tossed around even more? The idea, not not necessarily even to actually bring people up on trees and charges, but are, are we hearing more of it as we see the country more divided? I think so. I mean, we've seen you know, so much more polarization in American politics. And in this uh, presidential year, in this very unique presidential race, especially, you hear that uh, tossed around a lot about, you know, both of the candidates. So let's, I, I guess I, I sort of alluded to this, but is there anything, was it one of those things where the publisher and the editor said, all right, Jeremy, we've got to limit you to this number? Or was there, was there a little bit of a battle of which would make the cut and which didn't? Uh, no, the, the publisher actually came up with the concept and uh, said, uh, well, it's up to you. Find uh, we want twelve examples, and found, I found twelve. Actually, out there was uh, some narrowing down, and uh, one of the things I wanted to do is avoid people who were actually charged or convicted of treason. Aaron Burr stands out as someone who, had I not been kind of trying to avoid the actual treason charges, who definitely would have merited a chapter in the book. And how long did it take you to put it all together? Uh, about seven months. Spent uh, a lot of time uh, pouring through uh, old books at the ASU library. Spent a lot of time going through the correspondence of the founding fathers, looking through old uh, records of congressional debates from the 1790s. There's a lot that went into that. And you still found a lot of time to cover the governor's office at the Capitol <laughs> Times, which we appreciate as well. <laughs> yeah, no problem, no problem. Yeah, if this was uh, weekends, nights, mornings, any time I could find some sp- some uh, spare time, it's uh, definitely pretty tough with a full-time job, but uh, definitely worth it. Jeremy Duda's first book is called If This Be Treason, The American Rogues and Rebels Who Walk the Line Between Dissent and Betrayal. If you want to meet Jeremy and have your book signed, you can go to Changing Hands Bookstore on November the 14th. Jeremy, thanks for being here. No problem. Thanks for having me. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The 2016-17 NBA season begins next week, and outside expectations for the Phoenix Suns are extremely low. The organization has some unproven young players and some veterans who are coming off injury-plagued seasons. But head coach Earl Watson, who took over on an interim basis last season, has tried to incorporate unique ways of looking at basketball and reestablishing the importance of teamwork. He also emphasizes the importance of energy and often mentions the Krebs cycle. For some, Watson has sounded more like a college coach, and that may come from the admiration he expresses for the legendary UCLA men's basketball coach, John Wooden. Earl Watson joins me now to talk about the Suns and his philosophies of life and basketball. Coach, you had a lengthy NBA playing career. You only retired a couple of years ago before becoming a head coach. Do you think that's a trend we'll continue to see? And how does that help you relate to these young players? I'm not really sure what that trend is, but for me personally, uh, when I was about 25 years old, I played 13 years in the NBA. I'm 37 now. At 25, I started travel teams, so AAU basketball. And for me, that was the connection, like being with the travel team, being with the younger generation, understanding the mindset and always being connected to that next group coming up into the NBA. So I think that kind of helped me transition. Well, how do you coach teamwork um, and get players to appreciate each other's talents while also maintaining their individuality? Because you're coaching guys who obviously have tremendous talent, and some guys are naturally ones who connect with their teammates, and others maybe not so much. How do you do that? I think the first thing, you have to develop a program. Um, Our Krebs cycle, so to speak, for us, is a Krebs cycle of just love that transitions to character development synergy, surrender, belief, and goes back around. And the destination for us is to play into the playoffs and win championships. But each step is most important. 
And all of that can happen if the next step is there and is solid foundation and it doesn't break. If it breaks, we know we can never transition to the next. We can never go in a full crib cycle. So once you establish the love, you establish a relationship beyond basketball. And then you start talking about building people of character. We want to build people of character, players who are not just good basketball players, but good people. Because we truly believe if they're good people, first and foremost, once they come on the court, they buy into everything that we do. So it's easier to tell a guy to sacrifice if you first teach him to be a good person. And so that kind of translates and transitions. And beyond that, we want relationships for life. So we want these players that come through, be a part of our family, be a part of our program, and understand this is a lifelong relationship. Coach, it's, it's a fascinating concept. What would you say to a cynical fan who would say, well, I appreciate that. I think that's great. But what if a guy is already 26 years old and, and hasn't shown himself to be at least outwardly a great teammate or a great person? Can you work with someone like that at that point? I think you got to find the core of the person challenges. And 26 is still young. I remember being 26 and making some of the worst decisions in life. <laughs> you know, just that's just the truth. So we have young people in this business. And you have to understand, it's not about basketball and I've never had basketball conversations with my players it's about life it's about the social environment in which they come up in and understanding those challenges through their adolescent years that you can travel backwards well Einstein is great on reverse time travel if you can travel backwards and find that core that core problem and that core challenge that's stuck with them forever you can change the present so when you're working with these players and to help them become better people in the tradition of coaching, can you push them hard? Can you criticize them, or do you have to kind of stay positive? Uh, for me, I never criticize a player until they understand how much I love them. Because no one cares how much you know until they know how much you care. So that's, that's our thing. We have to get to know our players, understand that relationship, be transparent, not only for them to be transparent with us, but us with them about our obstacles in life that we had growing up and just being honest and the mistakes we made and how we overcome those mistakes, overcame those mistakes. And then you can start criticizing. We don't even call it criticizing. We call it love, nurture, teach. Now, can a team made up of players, do they, you need to have diversity on the team? I mean, in terms of points of view, personalities, age group. It's never paralysis from analysis. We don't sit there and there's no exact formula or equation to how this works. You surrender. It's a part of our Crip cycle. You surrender to the moment. You surrender to where you are now. Once you surrender to the moment and let go of expectation, your answers are right in front of you. A lot of times we go through life and we don't surrender to where we are. So we have these expectations of where we should be or how it's, it's supposed to be. But you keep fighting that. You keep fighting and you never get progression. You let go of expectations and realize everything in your life is a, is a gift. You're humble, you're appreciative, and you're in the moment. You have mindfulness and awareness of this exact moment. Whatever obstacle approaches you, there's always an answer right there. The outside expectations for the Suns this season are low, and do you care about that? Do you use it to motivate your team, or is it just something off in the distance? Uh, one thing about NBA players and professional athletes in general, you can go into any locker room. If you go around a locker room, you have someone, each player, to give you their story. 99% of the time, you're going to get a story of a player that isn't supposed to be here because of statistics. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting. The backgrounds we come from, whether it's a broken family or not a broken family, the challenges we have in life, you can have a family that's not broken, but have parents who give you no awareness. 
So you always have these constant problems, constant struggles, constant challenges. So a lot of us, we play sport to release our struggles, to release our stress. And that's why it's so passionate. We put a lot of that into what we do on the court. So when we talk about expectations, we've defied expectations and statistics our entire life. (laughs) So why do we succumb to that now? There's no reason to ever accept it now if how we the, re, the, the journey we took to get to this moment, we never paid attention to it. We was the stubborn one, the defiant one, the one that changed that point, point, point one. We was that number. So we keep that same mindset. And that's what belief is in the end of our Krebs cycle. Belief is stronger than reality. And this hasn't been an organization over the years that has shied away from social justice. I remember when SB 1070, the immigration bill, was passed here in Arizona. The owner, Robert Sarver, a couple of the players were, were very outspoken about how they weren't that comfortable with it. And, of course, we're seeing some other things in mainstream America that maybe many people knew more about, but it seems like everybody's hearing about it now. The relations between African-American communities, police officers. Do you want your players to say anything about that? Do you want the NBA to say anything about that? Uh, I'm no voice of the NBA. I'm only in control of my own voice. So for me, I'm Mexican and black. My mom is 100% Mexican, first generation. My dad is black. So when you really talk about what's going on in America, there's so many layers. Because if something was to happen to me, which category do I fall in? African-American or Mexican-American? So you forget about the mixed population, the mixed culture. So to me... Justice is the most important thing. Mindfulness of the community, mindfulness of how we develop and grow as a country is most and for is forefront of anything that we do with sports. My father was one of the first to integrate the army. My father's 85 years old. He joined the US Army in 49, integrated in around 54, 55. So we all have our personal experiences and how we feel about how to voice your stances for justice or unification or civil rights or whatever you want to, however you want to title it. So that conversation is so deep. I think our players want to be educated on it as well as speaking from their experiences. This has been an organization on the court that in its best years was known for even though it didn't win a championship, being very successful during the regular season by playing a style that fans really Loved. A lot of up-and-down scoring. Most of the best players in Suns history are known for offense rather than defense. How important do you think style of play on the court is to your team and also to getting fans excited? When I was 18 years old, I sat down with Coach Wooden. And I would go visit him on weekends every chance I got. We would sit in his condo in his front room. And he asked me a question that I never forgot. Coach Wooden was the first coach to play small ball. When he won his first championship, the tallest guy was probably 6'7", 6'8". Really small team. So then he goes and he gets a guy by the name of Lou Alcindor. Mm-hmm. And Coach Wooden was known for playing fast break basketball, full court press, pass ahead, run up the points, just constant momentum. He sits there, and I'm 18 at the time. He looks at me. He goes, Earl, the only time in my life – I didn't run my UCLA high post offense, which is notorious and famous for what he created. He's famous for that. It was only twice in my career I didn't run it. Can you tell me when? And I'm like 18. I'm just I'm just happy to be in his presence. <laughs> I just want to hug him. Like I'm like, yeah. you know, I just want to hug you and take a picture. Coach, like I don't really know when. He goes, 
when I had Lou Alcindor and Bill Walton. Why would I put a seven-footer so far out on the perimeter? And I just started laughing. So when we talk about style of play, and we talk about what's best and what's fun to watch, fans love watching their team win (laughs) more than style of play. So for us, we have to be very mindful of who we have, how we develop them, and what is their strength. And that goes back to your question earlier about their strength versus weakness. If we can creatively put each player in a comfort role that plays to their strengths, their weaknesses will be overcome quickly because they're more confident when they have to deal with it during the game. So we have to be very creative the entire time. And it's, I say this best, basketball is a fluid puzzle. It constantly changes on you. It's like life. We can wake up today and we can say today is going to be a great day. And within an hour, you can get the worst phone call of your life that you cannot control. But it's not about forcing your will. It's not about forcing what is supposed to be expectations. It's about what attitude are you going to have when you're faced with that challenge you never saw coming. And that's how we play the game of basketball for our program. Phoenix Suns head coach Earl Watson. Coach, really enlightening stuff. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. And still to come on here and now, we'll meet Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by the College of St. Scholastica, now taking applications for the BA in Social Work program at Mesa Community College, which starts January 2017. Learn more at css.edu Arizona. Good morning. Looking at the forecast, expect sunny skies today, a high of 93. Tonight, clear skies, a low of 66. And tomorrow, sunny with a high of 97. KJZZ proudly recognizes Leadership Society member Deanne Griebel for her support of the Arizona Science Desk. To join the Leadership Society, please visit leadership.kjzz.org. And checking traffic, it's looking good out there, but on the 10 eastbound at Washington, the shoulder is blocked by a crash. Right now in Flagstaff, we have sunny skies and it's 57. Tucson, sunny and 85. And here in Phoenix, sunny and 88 degrees at 1148. It's KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. The U.S. sent soldiers into Afghanistan and Iraq about 15 years ago, and since then the so-called Arab Spring occurred with dramatic leadership changes in places like Egypt and Libya. Meanwhile, the civil war in Syria rages on. Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario has been on the ground in many of those places, documenting the stories through her camera lens. She and colleagues were even kidnapped in Libya, but she continues to travel to dangerous locales for her job. As the title of her autobiography plainly put it, it's what I do. Lindsay Adario is in the Valley as part of the National Geographic Speaker Series at Mesa Arts Center, and her presentation begins tonight at 7.30, and she is with me now. Lindsay, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So what got you started as a journalist? So let's see. I started photographing when I was about 12 years old, and I never really took it seriously. I thought it could only be a hobby, and I wasn't familiar with other photojournalists as a young woman. And I studied international relations and Italian at University of Wisconsin. And after graduating, all I wanted to do, wanted to do was photograph. 
So I moved to Argentina to study Spanish and and try to photograph. And there I sort of became aware of pictures in the newspaper. And that's when I realized that photojournalism was this perfect marriage between photography and telling stories. And did you have that feeling inside at an early age, knowing that the mundane aspects of a nine-to-five job or something were not going to work for you? You know, I come from a really unconventional family. I was raised by hairdressers. Uh, we're four sisters. We're all artists. We're all creative. And our parents always said to us, do what you love. Do what makes you happy. Don't worry about money. The money will come. And so, you know, having those, uh, having their voice in my ear all growing up, it, I just, I knew I would never do something very conventional. Mm-hmm. You've probably hear, heard this a lot. I'm really struck by the dangerous places that you've been. And I know with what you do, I think there are some people who wonder, is there some kind of adrenaline rush? Is this? And obviously, in your case, that's not why you do it. But how do you get yourself ready physically and mentally to have gone back to places, even though you know your job is important, to keep doing that over and over again? Is there a particular sense of having to steal yourself, or is this just your personality, your character? Well, I think it's a bit of both. I mean, it's definitely my personality, my character. I'm very driven and very dedicated, um, and sometimes to a point where I am tortured by (laughs) by my own dedication. Um, I think... A lot of people ask me, are you fearless? Is it is it that you're so fearless that you can go to these places? And that, to me, is not at all the case. In fact, when I'm preparing to go to a war zone or to a place where I know my life will be in danger, I'm overcome with fear. I mean, I'm often paralyzed by that fear as I'm packing, as I'm preparing my, my things to go. Um, but I have to sort of manage that. I have to think about why am I scared? Uh, what is that grounded in? What are the actual risks of, uh, you know, in the place that I'm going? And how do I manage that? So for me, it's really about recognizing the fear, recognizing why I'm going, identifying the fact that I feel I need to cover this story for X reason. And so I'm talking myself through that process. And in order to do your job as well as you have, there has to be a certain level of freedom. But in doing that, do you somehow give up some of your safety? Because obviously, I mean, I presume you're not going to say, or the New York Times or National Geographic is not going to say to the military, listen, you need to make sure Lindsay is protected here. (laughs) I mean, because that's obviously not how things work. So how do you balance the idea of getting the story, telling the important stories with thinking about your safety, your freedom, everything else? I mean, that's obviously the hardest balance to achieve because the best stories um, that I've ever done um, are generally the most dangerous um, and where I've taken extraordinary risks. And so I think it's not to advocate being reckless, but certainly uh, there are calculated risks that I can take and and take with my colleagues. And a lot of that has to do with talking through a story, um, speaking with the translator, the fixer, who is the local journalist on the ground or whoever we're, we're working with. Um, also talking with other colleagues who might have done similar stories and figuring out, is it completely reckless or is there a way to do this safely? Um, I'm watching as, you know, on the plane here, I was reading all about Mosul and, and the invasion into Mosul. And of course, I'm tortured that I'm not there. You know, that's a story that um, I, over the last 16 years, I would have been right there on the front lines and I'm not. So I'm I'm looking at my colleagues' work. I'm looking at where they're positioned. Um, I'm I'm trying to figure out, you know, where I would be in that equation. Now, is the story for you about 
telling the important story in the, the bigger sense, the macro sense of what's going on as far as how villages are affected, how natives are affected, whatever it may be in a particular country? Or are you looking to find that sort of personal story in the middle of it, that one person, that one family who's affected? What sort of photos do you think tell the story the best? So I think it's a combination. I think obviously in some, like a, a huge story like the invasion of Mosul, um, it obviously the bigger picture is very important. It's very important to show sort of the push towards the city. Um, but then my forte is sort of what I'm best at is getting those very personal, intimate stories. So, of course, I would be looking for uh, men and women or particularly women, women and children who have fled recently, who are fleeing from these villages, what experiences they've had under under ISIS's regime. Um, so I think the personal stories are really the stories that affect uh, the readers and the viewers back back here and back home. And how do you gain the trust of of the individual sort of normal folks you're meeting? It depends. I mean, some people understand the value of journalism and understand that journalists are very important to carry their message to the rest of the world. And so those are sort of the easy cases. Um, In situations where people are more skeptical of journalists, where they're um, a bit more guarded, it takes time. I mean, I have to really sit down, explain who I am, why I want their confidence, why I think it's important to tell their story, and I have to hope that they believe me. And as an American, how does that affect it? It's tough. I mean, there are, I work mostly in the Middle East and Africa, and a lot of people have been very disillusioned by U.S. foreign policy overseas and in the countries in which I work. And so I have to say, look, I'm, I'm here to tell your story. I'm not, you know, I don't work for the government. I'm not, I, I'm not a proponent of our foreign policy. I, I'm strictly a messenger. I'm a journalist. And how about being a woman? It's a, you know, a lot of people ask me, is it, you know, is it a hindrance being a woman? No, absolutely not. I think it's a great benefit. Uh, it's helped me a lot because my gender um, gives me access to men and women. And so, you know, the only time that it was difficult or it has been difficult being a woman um, were when I was imbe- embedded with the military, the U.S. military in very tough places. And I'm five feet one. Um, if I were jumping irrigation ditches or having to climb, you know, mountains 7,000 feet for hours at a time. I had to be very physically prepared for that. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario. She's in the Valley as part of the National Geographic Speaker Series at Mesa Arts Center. Her presentation begins tonight at 730. She also has an autobiography called It's What I Do. And let me jump ahead to the, the lighter question of the conversation, which is that Steven Spielberg, Jennifer Lawrence, do those names mean anything to you? (laughs) (laughs) So uh, my book, It's What I Do, has been optioned by Warner Brothers. And uh, right now, Steven Spielberg and Jennifer Lawrence, uh, Spielberg will direct, and Jennifer Lawrence is slated to play me. Yeah. Okay. Now, based on the other excitement you've had in your life, this must be sort of an eh, but how exciting is that? No. I mean, it's <laughs> look, I'm a, I'm a really pragmatic person. It's very exciting. Of course, it's incredibly flattering. I never, you know, I wrote this book uh, for many different reasons. One, first and foremost, because after I had been released from captivity in Libya, where I was held for a week, mm-hmm. I felt like I needed to sort of sit down and revisit all the experiences I had gone through in the previous decade and put some thought into those experiences because I'm a person who's always moving full speed ahead. And so I wrote the memoir 
partially sort of as therapy and just because it was I had a book deal and it was fun actually it was fun to be home um but I didn't really expect anyone to read it so you know suddenly it became a New York Times bestseller and um and it was optioned by Warner Brothers and so it's incredibly flattering I mean I think Hollywood reaches an audience that um journalism doesn't always reach and so it's very exciting you mentioned the kidnapping in Libya. Um, is it okay, considering the line of work you are in, for people who love you to worry about you? Or do you say, I don't need that kind of burden. You've, you know who I am. You love me for this reason. I mean, of course it's okay. I, I, you know, I worry about my friends who are war correspondents. You know, when I'm not in a place, I'm terrified for my friends. I'm always scared that I'll be getting that call in the middle of the night from one of my editors saying, you know, something has happened to X or Y. And so, you know, I, I think, of course, my family and loved ones will worry about me, but I wish they wouldn't. You know, I, I hate to put that burden on them. And so I often don't tell people where I'm going until I'm back. Mm. Um, um, I, I definitely don't tell my parents anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think the average American may be missing, even with the coverage they've seen of yours or the New York Times or other national, international outlets, about what goes on in the Middle East and how, how the U.S. relates or how the U.S. is seen there? I think um, a lot of people, what happens in a lot of these war zones, and, and I am a culprit of this as well, is that we are we go directly to uh, the center of the conflict. And we and I, as a photographer, you go to the, I go to the most dramatic scenes. I'm covering the front line. I'm covering, you know, I try to cover how war affects civilians. Um, but at the same time, those are the most dramatic images and also the heart of the story. I think it's also important to cover sort of the daily life and when nothing's really happening. I mean, for in every war zone, there's also a section of the city generally uh, where life goes on. I think what we're missing uh, in the U.S. As, as readers, as consumers of news is the incredibly positive side of the Middle East. I mean, you know, I, yes, I've been kidnapped twice. I've been kidnapped in Iraq. I've been kidnapped in Libya. But I have also been afforded the most incredible hospitality in the Middle East. People have opened their homes to me. They've fed me. They've given me shelter. They have been wonderful. And so I think it's also important to recognize that. And Lindsay, briefly to close, um, when you're doing interviews like this or when you're at home, you said you enjoyed writing the book, but do you do you still have that – do you always sort of have that wanderlust ready to go out to find that story as you mentioned? You know, I, I do and I don't. I think I have a son who's almost five years old, so I um, still am on the road all the time. But when I'm home, I have to really be present for him. And and so I try to just make the most out of the days I'm home and, and um, yeah, and enjoy myself. Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Lindsay Adario is in the Valley as part of the National Geographic Speaker Series at Mesa Art Center tonight at 730 Real pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. And thanks very much for listening. Thanks to our senior producer, Sarah Ventry, also Stina Sieg for their help on today's program. If you missed any of our segments, you can catch them online later this afternoon at kjzz.org. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by Wild Horse Pass Hotel and Casino, presenting Sinatra and Friends with singing impressionist Bob Anderson on stage Saturday, November 12th. Bob Anderson bio and tickets at winhealariver.com. Mm-hmm.